You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. You're tuned in to the R1 News, your stop for news and current affairs on the airwaves, 11 to 12 weekdays here on Radio 191 FM, Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi. Tēnā koutou, tēnā ata, this is R1 News on Radio 1 Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi 91 FM, koukaya tēnei. Coming up on the show today, we have the headlines and weather with Eileen. We speak to University of Otago Associate Professor Sarijwan Fraser on her recent geometric analysis of bull kelp and the implications of these findings for marine life and biosystems. And we talk to Professor Craig Bunt of the University of Otago about the recent agricultural sector recommendations from the Primary Sector Climate Action Partnership. First up, here is Eileen with the headlines and weather. The R1 News Headlines. Tēnā koutou, ko Eileen aho. Early testing suggests new sub-variants of COVID-19 are increasing in prevalence in Aotearoa. According to the Ministry of Health, the BA2 Omicron variant is currently responsible for over 95% of COVID infections in Aotearoa. However, four cases of subvariant BA5 and one case of subvariant BA4 have been detected in the community, with no clear link to the border. The Ministry of Health says these variants are beginning to show indication of increasing prevalence. Epidemiologist Michael Baker says he is not surprised at the detection of these new variants, as they are more infectious. New variants are detected via rapid antigen and PCR testing, as well as via wastewater testing. Microplastics have been found in freshly fallen Antarctic snow for the first time. Whilst microplastics have been found in Antarctica before, this is the first time they have been found in fresh snowfall, which could accelerate snow and ice melting, contributing to the decline of Antarctic ecosystems. Research was carried out by University of Canterbury PhD student Alex Aves and published in journal The Cryosphere. Previous research shows that microplastics in the atmosphere contribute to climate change by trapping radiation emitted by the Earth. In icy places, they can lead to localised warming and be toxic for flora and fauna. And those were the headlines on the R1 News. Now, Ketipehe te Aho o te Rangi. How's the weather? The R1 News Weather. Itenera expect a high of the Komarua, 12. With high cloud, the potential for a morning shower and northwesterlies. Apopo expect a high of Tokomaroa 12 again, with showers developing in the evening and northeasterlies turning northwest. That was the R1 News headlines. Catch up at r1.co.nz forward slash news or find us at Radio 191 FM on Twitter or R1 News NZ on Instagram and tune in to R1 News at 11 a.m. on weekdays. That was Eileen with the headlines and weather. Coming up, we speak to University of Otago Associate Professor Sarah Dwin Fraser on her recent geometric analysis on bull kelp and the implications of these findings for marine life and biosystems. But first, here is Ben Woods with Hovering at Home.
A recently completed study led by the University of Otago has found bull kelp to have significantly larger migration patterns than we once thought. The geometric analysis has been carried out over decades and focused on washed up kelp on the shores of Antarctica, New Zealand and Australia. The findings showed some kelp found on southeastern New Zealand beaches had come all the way from South Georgia and Marion Island. Here to discuss this with us now is lead author of the study, Associate Prefer- Professor Crid Fraser from the Department of Marine Science at the University of Otago. Kia ora, Crid. Kia ora, Kaya. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on. 
What was the process of collecting this data? Does their work send them out into a field, for want of a better term? Are they on boats, or is the computer, or is computer modelling used to collect the data for the kelp? So it was a bit of both. This this goes all the way back to my PhD at Otago, which I started in 2006. I'm showing my age now. But um, in that, I was collecting bits of rimu rapa, bull kelp, from all around the southern hemisphere. And we were trying to use genetics to see how far it was travelling. But at the time, we didn't have really good genetic tools available to us. So we couldn't really see very much. We could see it was travelling, but we couldn't really pinpoint exactly where something washing up on a beach had come from. But now, with modern genomic tools, we can really um, get high-resolution data that shows exactly where something has come from if we've got good background data from the population. So this kind of drew on those samples I collected way back in between 2006 and 2009, and it added some new samples that we've collected from beaches in Antarctica and beaches on New Zealand and Tasmania and things that were hiding in museums. And we used genomics to figure out exactly where they'd come from. And then we used computer modeling to work out how often this is happening. We could see it was happening across decades because we had samples from across decades going right back to the 1990s. But now with the modeling, we can show that it's happening all the time and what's driving it. What are the implications of this research for Aotearoa in terms of new organisms and species arriving on our shores with the kelp? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because at the moment, if I collect kelp from overseas and bring it in, say from the South Antarctic, even um, you know Macquarie Island, um, I have to register it as a foreign organism and it's kept under quarantine in the lab, even if it's dead and preserved. But in fact, what we're seeing is this kelp is reaching New Zealand on its own and it's not just the kelp, but it's all sorts of animals that are travelling with the kelp. So there are little crustaceans and worms and sea stars and all sorts of things living in the base of the kelp, and they can travel tens of thousands of kilometres across oceans and wash up on new shores. So from a New Zealand perspective, I think, you know, it's not, it's not particularly concerning because it's been happening all the time for, for thousands and thousands of years, presumably. But, of course, it could bring new organisms with it, maybe organisms that we don't want, like marine viruses. So we have shown recently in another study that there are pathogens, diseases, that can travel with the kelp too. Do you see any difference in the kelp or its hitchhiking passengers after they arrive in their new country? Are they undergoing any change in transit? Well, interestingly, we we don't actually see them um, establishing once they arrive. So we have really similar species or lineages here in New Zealand already, but when we get these ones coming up from the sub-Antarctic or um, from distant shores like Chile, if they reach New Zealand, they're not apparently kind of establishing and creating a community. And we think that's because there's already similar species here that are occupying that ecological space, I suppose, that niche. They, so something new will struggle to get in because there's already something here. So what this kelp travelling does is allow the kelp and the organisms to set up shop in a new place when there's a big disturbance like an earthquake, like the big earthquakes that happened up at um, up near Kaikoura in North Canterbury, and they kind of wiped out whole populations of kelp and other intertidal organisms along a big stretch of coast. So then there's the possibility for something that's travelling from a long way away to get a foot in the door. 
And you've mentioned how environmental things can impact the travel paths of this kelp. When it comes to changing ecosystems, species basically have three options. They can move, adapt or die. Some estimates show that between 20 and 80% of species, including animals and even trees, are on the move as a result of global warming. Is this also impacting the movement of kelp? Are the tides and oceanic systems altering course due to warming oceans? Or are passengers climbing on kelp rafts in search of a more sustainable climate? I'd say it's a bit of both. We've got definitely there's going to be changes to the ocean currents and wind patterns. And we know that wind has a big role in forcing the movement of things that are floating at the surface of the ocean um, in unexpected ways. So a storm can push something that's floating at the surface um, across uh, an ocean current that we would expect to take it in a different direction. So that's pretty cool. Um, and as the winds change direction and the ocean currents change direction, there's going to be some unpredictability in where these kelp rafts go. But it also positions the kelp and its invertebrate organisms, you know, the little animals that live inside it, to, to really, as you say, adapt or move to um, find a new place that they can live comfortably as their old habitat gets too warm for them. So already in places like um, Australia, we see a lot of kelp uh, shifting south because it's getting too warm in the north. They're starting to shift south. But, of course, once they reach the bottom of Australia, there's not really anywhere for them to go. Um, so they risk extinction dropping off the end. So something that can float as well as Rimu Rapa can is, is really um, in, a, in a good position to cross an ocean, find somewhere new and set up a new, new um, community that can survive as the climate warms. Has the results of this study changed the direction of where your research will go next? Um, well, we were, we've been thinking about this for uh, quite a lot, long time. Like I said, it sort of goes all the way back to 2006. But I think what's exciting is the new tools that we have available so things like high-resolution genomic data, high-power computer modelling, oceanographic modelling. And so that enables us to kind of start to broaden the question to not just where is kelp going and what about the animals that travel with it, but also anything that's floating at the surface of the ocean. So that includes things like plant seeds, driftwood, Sometimes little invertebrates like ants can hitch a ride on a bit of driftwood or um, floating man-made objects like styrofoam. They can all travel in the same way that the kelp does. And so as we get these new tools, we can start to understand dispersal dynamics in the southern hemisphere and figure out, you know, as you say, the risk of invasive species reaching New Zealand or the chance of these species surviving um, as the climate warms because they can reach new territory. Thank you, Crid. Thanks, Kaya. That was Associate Professor Crid Fraser from the University of Otago on a recently completed study mapping the global paths of bull kelp. Coming up, we speak to Professor Craig Bunt of the University of Otago about the recent culture, agricultural sector recommendations from the Primary Sector Climate Action Partnership. First, here is Proteins of Magic with one more thing here on R1 News. I'd have another dream.
Kia karapu koe ki te kōrero i te reo Māori.
This is the R1 News on Radio 191 FM. Today, I'll edit on Kotahi.
to myself when it could be somebody else. As if you want it from me. As if you want it from me. You're listening to R1 News. I am Kaya Kahurangi Jameson. Hewaka Ekenoa, the primary sector climate action partnership, has proposed an approach to reducing emissions and supporting sustainable food production in Aotearoa. They recommend that the best alternative to pricing agricultural emissions through the New Zealand Emissions Trading Scheme is a farm-level split gas levy with built-in incentives to reduce emissions and sequester carbon starting from 2025. This proposal has received controversy by those in the farming industry. Here to speak to us about the implications and intentions of Hawaka Ekenoa's proposal is Professor Craig Bunt of the University of Otago Department of Food Science. Kia ora, Craig. Kia ora, good morning. According to Farmers Weekly, 99% of farmers consulted said they don't want agricultural emissions to be priced through the emissions trading scheme. Why is this? Um, like any business, um, people want to avoid cost. <laughs> so I don't think it's unique to agriculture um, when asked, do you want to be part of something that will um, cost you more every day? I think that's, that's just the, the simplest answer. There seems to be a divergence on opinion about farmers' attitude to the environment. On the one hand, they can be accused of being careless and irresponsible, and we have seen news stories highlighting those cases. But on the flip side, we know that many farmers are doing things like fencing waterways and undertaking huge planting schemes in an effort to make vast improvements to their environmental impact. What is your impression of the opinion of farmers as a collective group to environmental concerns about farming practices? I think the vast majority of farmers see that um, addressing sustainability, minimising environmental impact and improving the quality of the land um, simply makes good business sense as well. Um, It's not just about the the bottom line, the financial bottom line. That any farm that's um, doing the best for its um, plant and animal health and environmental health is, is going to be a better farm all around even just profitability. But farmers get upset when the news is always the the bad news story, the bad news story, Um, and that truly is a percentage if we think of the thousands and thousands of farms in New Zealand. If you find one or two farms and make a whole story about that, that sometimes appears as if it's representative of the the whole industry. Um, Of course, people's um, farmers... um, understandable reaction typically is is a a what-about approach and say, if a farmer's dumping this in a waterway, what are cities doing to their rivers and and coastlines? And and that's um, a quick way to a very short conversation that doesn't help anybody. Ralph Sims, Emeritus Professor in Sustainable Energy and Climate Migration at Massey University, has commented on the fact that the farming sector has more to lose from increasing greenhouse gases than most, and he's surprised the report didn't go further. Meanwhile, Green's agricultural spokesperson, Tiano Tuyono, said the report itself admitted that more work is needed on many of its proposals and said it's like they were given a hallway pass and used it to wag class. What has been the general initial response to the report and is it just a first gambit in what will be an evolving plan? Um, the response has been incredibly varied um, from the obvious, this is great, this is wonderful, to it's a, it's a balance of uh, mechanisms and policy 
to others saying you know, not enough is being done. Um, when people say not enough is being done, uh, I'd like to hear more um, what they mean by that. And if it's a simple response, say um, moving out of animal um, livestock totally, um, that needs careful consideration about how you would do that. So saying more needs to be done without backing it up with what um, exactly that is uh, isn't um, helping the, the, the debate. Nearly 340 million of the 2.9 billion in climate funding announced last month was earmarked for setting up a climate centre, a centre for climate action on agricultural emissions, to research ways technology can be used to, for example, cut methane on the farm. This was pretty controversial as the agriculture sector hasn't contributed to the funding pool for climate spending. Why were farmers not content with this and have instead pushed forward with issuing this farm level pricing plan? Um, I think there's a couple of factors at least here. Uh, one is individual farmers want to be individually assessed and, and don't want a, a blanket mechanism across all farms because there's many different farming situations, farming scenarios and, and ways of farming. And those who are um, actively and have been for a long time minimising up um, uh, greenhouse gas outputs want to be recognised for that. Um, they don't want a, a blanket um, thing across at all. Um, if, if money is going to be um, generated um, as a consequence of um, charging for emissions, farmers are very keen to see that come back into research to help further reduce emissions. So they can see a mechanism where if emissions are high, then that will have a penalty. That money will then be channeled back into helping reduce those uh, emissions and not be simply a revenue-generating mechanism. So I think farmers want some control and say in that. Um, they certainly want a lot, um, a high level of transparency and how that money generated um, will be returned to um, research and, and what sort of research and who for and how that's going to um, get to produce um, tools as quickly as possible. Ngamehe Craig, thank you for talking to me this morning. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Professor Craig Bunt from the University of Otago Food Science Department on the controversy, implications and intentions of Hiwaka Ikanoa's new proposal. You're listening to Awa News. The time is 20 minutes to 12 and this is Mel Parsons with Slow Burn. It's been a hard year of highs and lows There have been dark times
You are tuned into R1 News here on Radio 1 Tereo, Irirangi Kotahi 91 FM, Kokaya Tenei. On today's show, we spoke to University of Otago Associate Professor Cred Fraser on a recently completed study mapping the global paths of bull kelp using geometric analysis. And we discussed Hewaka Ikenoa's proposed approach to reducing emissions and supporting sustainable food production in Aotearoa with Professor Craig Bunt of the University of Otago's Food Sciences Department. This has been R1 News with Kaya Kahurangi Jamison. You've up been online tuned in to the R1, R1 News. News. Weekdays from 11 to 12 here on Radio 1 91FM. Tereo Irirangi Kotahi. Catch up at r1.co.nz forward slash news or find us at Radio 1 91FM on Twitter or R1 News NZ on Instagram. Kia parapu koe ki te kōrero i te reo Māori.
the Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.